I'm Shannon Bream. I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Kennedy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, June 5th, 2023, on Mike Emanuel. After months of President Biden saying he would not negotiate on a deal to raise the government's credit limit, he ultimately agreed to a bipartisan compromise with Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But for different reasons, there is unhappiness from both liberals and conservatives. The reason that we have $32 trillion in debt is because both parties have added to that debt, and both parties last week are leading us off a cliff that's just unaffordable and unattainable. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Even with calls to pause the development of artificial intelligence, some say it's too late. China is moving ahead and that AI is too valuable, especially within our military. We need to accelerate our development of AI to get out ahead, to get ahead of our adversaries so we're in a better position with more leverage to actually limit its use. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Congress avoided economic disaster for the country by passing a compromised debt package extending the government's ability to borrow money until January 2025. It was a major test for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, considering Republicans have a single-digit majority in the House and Democrats control the White House and the Senate. McCarthy talked about getting it done with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday Morning Futures. This is the first time that we're finally spending less than we spent the year before. This is the largest cut in American history. But there are Republicans who strongly opposed the package, such as Florida Congressman Mike Waltz. The number one job of the federal government is to keep the country safe uh, and to accept Biden's defense budget, which is a cut when you incorporate inflation Uh, At the end of the day, I just couldn't support that. At the White House, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre took a victory lap on behalf of President Biden. I think that the fact that this is a president that was able to bring both sides together and get this done on behalf of the American people, I think that's important. We avoided, averted something that could have uh, been incredibly catastrophic to our economy and hurt American families. Back in Congress, Republican lawmakers on House oversight are pressing FBI Director Christopher Wray to provide unclassified records alleging then-Vice President Biden engaged in a bribery scheme with a foreign national. Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley is also demanding answers on the Senate side of the Capitol. It's not for me to make a judgment about whether these accusations are accurate or not. It's up to my job to make sure the FBI is doing their job. And uh, that's what this is all about as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Public's business ought to be public. As lawmakers try to demonstrate, they can conduct serious oversight and also use the power of the purse to address the nation's finances. Well, on the debt ceiling vote, there was actually no limit or no cap to the debt ceiling. And uh, it allows for over $17 trillion to be added to our nation's debt over the next decade. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace is a South Carolina Republican. And when you look at the very small spending cuts in discretionary, it doesn't make up for the, the high increases in spending elsewhere. And so this was not a spending cut bill this was just an illusion of a <laughs> of a good bill, and it just wasn't. Um, and it was sort of shocking to see the wool being pulled over America's eyes. And I just couldn't stand by and let this happen without speaking up and speaking the truth on this thing. And Republicans gave everything away. One of the reasons I was a reluctant yes on the first debt ceiling vote was because I didn't think it was conservative enough because you have to negotiate, you have to build consensus, you have to find that middle ground. 
But in this bill, the administration got every progressive program paid for, and Republicans got nothing. Why then do you think that some of your Republican colleagues, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, seemed satisfied with the bill? It's hard to say. I mean, I guess I got something the president could sign into law, but there's so many loopholes in the bill, it'll give you whiplash. I mean, it will make your head spin. And I just wish that most of my colleagues in the House would have actually read the bill and seen the loopholes and seen what an illusion this bill was. Because guess what? Inflation is going to continue to go up. There's nothing to hold Republicans and Democrats accountable for big spending. The reason that we have $32 trillion in debt is because both parties have added to that debt. And both parties last week are leading us off a cliff that's just unaffordable and unattainable for most Americans. What are we going to do? Raise taxes in the future? We can't. I mean, I just... How are you going to pay for all of this? There's no answer in that bill. To that point, what else do you believe can be done to address excessive spending here in Washington following this debt deal? Well, we have to hold our elected officials accountable. Uh, you know, if they say we're going to manage it through the appropriations process, well, let's do that. But, you know, we have the Congressional Budget Act of 1974. That's in law. It's been there for decades, and Congress has never followed it. So I, I just, you know, I'm about as jaded as I've ever been Mike, in my two and a half years and how disappointed I was that there are not, we're not at least strings attached in writing that would hold senators and house members accountable for the spending that is coming. And when Americans see later this year that appropriations bills, the way that they come through, the way that they will get around these fake spending caps and spend more money than we have and continue off this cliff, I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment from Republicans and Democrats alike in America, maybe not on the Hill because they're proud of this spending bill. But in America, across the country, people, I think, are going to be really surprised to see that, oh, my gosh, it didn't even matter. They can get around all their their spending caps and spend as much as they want. In your view, was there an alternative compromise that could have been reached that would have better served America, considering you had a Republican speaker negotiating with a Democratic president? Mm-hmm. Well, if we had real spending cuts that were in writing across the board to get spending down to pre-COVID levels to where our tax revenues and our outlays are about the same, whether that's 10 years or 20 years, I think that is the responsible measure here. But I'll tell you, I'll be honest, Mike, a clean debt ceiling with a actual spending limit cap would have been better than this bill. This bill is awful. That's how bad it is. How do you think this debt ceiling package will impact American families and their finances in the years to come? Well, inflation is taxation. I mean, the inflation is going to continue to rise. And, you know, a lot of folks may not realize, but the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act done under Donald Trump, those are set to expire in 2025. What's going to happen then? I don't don't see how you can get away with this kind of spending, this kind of deficit level spending over the next 10 years and continue to allow people to have tax cuts. So inflation is going to go up. The cost of goods, everything will continue to rise to unaffordable levels because wages are not keeping up with inflation. You know, I think that a recession is on the horizon as well as we continue this level of spending. But it's going to take Americans holding their members of Congress, both in the Senate and the House, both Republicans and Democrats, accountable. That means calling them. That means writing them and saying, be more responsible with our money, because that's not what's happening today. Americans were sold a bill of goods. Uh, That just simply wasn't true. I've been told that historically divided government's a great opportunity to kind of lock arms and say, "Okay, we're going to tackle a big issue in our country together. And, you know, people are not going to be happy with every aspect of it. It's going to have to be a compromise Mm -hmm. between the two parties. But 
Do you feel like we're missing an opportunity to potentially sit down and either tackle the debt or some other major issue that's facing the country? A hundred percent. This was not a compromise. I mean, this was literally fulfilling and funding every progressive program the Biden administration has ever wanted. It is now paid for. The responsible response would have been for both sides, Republicans and Democrats, to say, we're going to cut, you know, X number of dollars over the next 10 years or the next 20 years and get back to spending levels that are equal to the tax revenue coming in. Like if we can put it in writing and say, we're going to slowly decrease spending, we're going to get rid of wasteful programs. And maybe let's let go some of the, you know, 52% of the federal employees that aren't showing up to work. We shouldn't be paying for their salaries, right? I mean, there are ways to do it slowly over time to eventually get there. And that would have been the responsible measure, the responsible answer. But that's not what we got. Switching gears, let's talk a little about the work you're doing on the House Oversight Committee, an investigation that seems to be top of mind for the committee revolves around the Biden family business dealings. Reporting last month that the Biden family and business associates received more than $10 million from foreign nationals while Joe Biden was vice president. How is this investigation currently going for those in House oversight? And do you believe DOJ and FBI is going to get to the bottom of this? I don't believe the FBI and DOJ are going to do their job. They have stonewalled the Oversight Committee time and time again. We are finally going to get access to one document from the FBI that's been subpoenaed by the Oversight Committee. But there are multiple documents that will be subpoenaed for this investigation. We'll follow the facts where they take us. But I do believe the Oversight Committee, if the facts lead us there, will refer charges to DOJ. Because if this is not illegal, it probably should be because none of this alleged racketeering, alleged money laundering, none of it happens without Joe Biden. And there's a ton of evidence there already. The media, mainstream media always wants to say, well, well, there's no evidence Joe Biden did anything wrong here. But when you look at the revolving door of appointments that he had, meetings he had with Hunter Biden's business associates and clients, when you look at the flight records, and it's more than $10 million, when we get through all of this, it's tens of millions of dollars. I mean, it's just the alleged pay to play here is so evident. The shell game, it's crazy that charges have not yet been brought years later by the DOJ or the FBI. It sounds like the FBI is okay with showing documentation to your chairman, James Comer, but doesn't want to hand over the paperwork. And what about the rest of the members of your committee having access to the documents to see what's going on? What do you make of that? Well, if the FBI, if Christopher Wray doesn't show the subpoena documents that we're requesting to the entire full committee, then he will be held in contempt. I don't want to see a redacted copy of the documentation. I want to see the full-fledged uh, information because it's not classified. We should be able to have access to it. We should be able to see it. In my understanding, there's more than one smoking gun here. And these whistleblowers, they're credible, and we don't want to water down this investigation. They should do the right thing. And if they don't, we'll hold them in contempt. That's how this works. And are you confident you'll get to the bottom of it at some point? I am. I am very confident in Congressman Comer's chairman of oversight and Congressman Jordan on judiciary that one way or another, we will get to the bottom of this as long as we can continue to get access to documents. But that's going to mean that we've got to hold the FBI accountable when they try to block us or stonewall us from access from that information. When you're traveling around your district and you talk to folks there and maybe they ask what you're doing with the oversight committee and you mention this investigation to them, why should this matter? Well, the thing is, is when I talk to people in South Carolina or across the country, they want accountability. They don't care if you're Republican or Democrat, but if you've broken the law, 
someone needs to be fired or someone needs to be charged with the crimes that they've committed because we see time and time again, over and over again, someone does something that's corrupt or illegal and no one, no one is ever held accountable. And that's simply what the American people deserve. It's what they need. And we're going to be there you know, holding the Biden family accountable every step of the way. It feels like in politics right now, South Carolina's having a moment. Obviously, it's always an early state in the primary season. Mm-hmm. You got a couple of your fellow South Carolinians running for president in Senator Tim Scott and former Governor Nikki Haley. It feels to me also like you're having a moment that um, you're really breaking through and your name's out there and you're engaged in some of the big issues of our time. Um, what about this moment in political history and what it means for you and for the great state of South Carolina? Well, it's an immense honor to have both Tim Scott and Nikki Haley running for president. Not only are they South Carolinians, but they're both constituents of mine. I consider them both friends. And uh, so it's wild to see the two of them running for president from the same state. But South Carolina has has developed great leaders for our nation, for our country. And for me, I'm just trying to work hard for the people of South Carolina and for the people of this nation to show that we can uh, make a difference and we can deliver results. We can do it in a not-so-crazy way and compassionate way. And I'm trying to do my part to make this world a better place than when I found it. I've got two teenage kids, and we're trying to show them that this is the way forward. This is a country that you can love and respect and raise your kids, work hard, retire in the best, freest nation in the world, which should be the focus for everybody here. Congresswoman Nancy Mesa, the great state of South Carolina, grateful for your time. Have a wonderful week. Thanks, Mike. You too. This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up. An Air Force colonel recently told an air and space combat summit in London about a hypothetical scenario in which an AI-enabled drone in simulation attacks its human operator after the operator tells it not to do its task. That task? take down surfaced air missiles. At first, it was reported as if the Air Force did conduct such a simulation, but the military branch leader clarified the colonel was speaking about a hypothetical. Still, it came at a time when many in the field are talking about possibly pausing AI development due to fears about what AI could do to us. At an April Senate Armed Services Subcommittee hearing, three cybersecurity experts told the senators a pause is not a good idea. I think ceding our nascent advantage here may not be wise. Shyam Sankar, chief technology officer at Palantir Technologies, agreed with others on the panel that China's right behind us on AI and ready to overtake. But on the battlefield, deploying AI will be tricky. The panelists, including Sankar, told the senators we're simply not there yet. For example, if there was a need to use any of the cutting edge large language models on a secret or top secret network, today we cannot. This is a massive market failure. For a mere tenth of a percent of the department's budget, we could bring cutting edge commercial innovation to our warfighters. Today, I can give Avis and AIG more advanced AI than I can bring the Army and the Air Force. The head of the RAND Corporation said building the architecture so the Pentagon can have and analyze the data is critical. Josh Laspinoso, CEO of the cybersecurity firm Shift5, told the senators. I'll tell you, when I was in uniform, it drove me absolutely crazy that we could operate an aircraft or a ground combat vehicle or a submarine in a combat environment and not number one, be able to collect or own the data that came off of that platform. Uh, That is just uh, 
a massive national security uh, issue. They told the senators dive into the AI deep end now or our adversaries may win this race. But many say moving forward with this technology might be best done with an international agreement. One lawmaker points out that even our adversaries have committed, as have we, to not using blinding lasers in combat. That's right. I mean, I'd even throw out the Geneva Conventions. Now, everybody likes to point out how the Russians are violating the Geneva Conventions left and right in their war in Ukraine right now. Seth Moulton is Democratic congressman from Massachusetts and a Marine Corps veteran. But actually, the simple fact that they feel they need to hide the massacre in Bucha or they need to apologize for the fact that some Russians cut off the heads of Ukrainian soldiers. It shows that the convention matters, that even our adversaries respect the Geneva Conventions fundamentally, even if they don't always follow them perfectly. And that's why you can't use the excuse that our adversaries aren't interested in this stuff to not try. We need to try to limit the use of AI in warfare because the consequences could be literally catastrophic. What is it about AI? Like it still has too much good potential use that we can't all just simply say, you know what, ChatGPT4 is good enough. Let's leave it there. Let's let's just stop working on this, as you've seen in many articles and many op-eds and and many uh, bigwigs in AI have said, you know, have posited the possibility that maybe we just stop now. And it sounds like you're saying that's not realistic. We can evolve with it for the good it can do. Is that am I right? Absolutely. I don't think we should stop. In fact, my argument to the United States and to the Pentagon in particular is that we need to accelerate our development of AI to get out ahead, to get ahead of our adversaries so we're in a better position with more leverage to actually limit its use. But look, I think AI is going to help us cure cancer. I think AI is going to help education every single day in our kids' schools. I, I think that the positive possibilities of AI are limitless. But we have to focus our regulatory efforts on the very dangerous use cases that are out there, too. And AI and warfare is probably the the biggest one right now. Yeah, I think it's perhaps the the scariest. Um, You paint this picture in your op-ed of swarms of drones acting autonomously on whatever it sees as like an enemy or adversary. That's obviously a terrifying image. And it reminded me of that Black Mirror episode with the bees. They were called autonomous drone insects. It sounds like you're saying that sort of capability in the wrong hands is a real possibility. And yet our Navy is already working on these so-called drone swarms, right? It's not just a real possibility. It's not far off. And we might be the first to develop it, but China's I think, working harder on AI than we are. Vladimir Putin has come out and said, whoever has the best AI is going to rule the world. So we know our adversaries see this as a potential advantage. We know they're working on this. And we know because of their behavior in conflicts like Ukraine, that they're not going to put the same moral guardrails around its use that we do here in America. I think this is every bit as dangerous as nuclear weapons. Talk to me more about AI use in the military. You painted this picture in the op-ed of explosives hurtling towards service members, and you posit, like, what if AI had assessed that car, that it was too heavy to be just carrying people, that it could maybe be used to read the faces of the passengers to detect behavioral threats? It kind of makes me think police departments might benefit from that, Um, although could we end up 
using AI to make assessments it shouldn't be making? Like, should should part of this conversation be when you when you posit that possibility of using AI on the battlefield like that, that it only be used in on the battlefield and not domestically in that capacity? Well, what I'm saying fundamentally is that the positive possibilities of AI are, are limitless at this point. And, and, and we can barely even imagine the amazing things that AI is going to do. And that's going to be true even in warfare. There are ways that AI can make warfare much safer, cause fewer civilian casualties, less collateral damage, help commanders make decisions more quickly. That's all good. It's just the narrow use cases where it can be very evil in the hands of the wrong person, unconstrained, not following the conventions of warfare that have been established for a long time. We've got to set some rules, some guardrails around where we can use this and where we won't. If countries like Russia and China were to say, you know what, let's let's all sign on to a deal. And that and we all see that as good that we've regulated AI in some sort of international framework. Um, it still makes one think about, as you say, if this is as dangerous as nuclear weapons, possibly. What about North Korea? What about Iran? What if this technology gets into those kinds of hands, into the kinds of hands of people who maybe say they'll follow an international framework, but maybe won't in the long run. Most nations in the world have agreed to be responsible about limiting not just the use of nuclear weapons, but their proliferation. There are so many nations who have agreed we won't even have nuclear weapons. We won't try to acquire them. But then, of course, there's Iran that has an illicit nuclear weapons program and North Korea that not only has an illicit program, but threatens to use them all the time. That's why this can be so dangerous. And it's why it's important to have not just our allies on board with limiting the use of AI in warfare, but our adversaries as well. I, I think the whole conversation about the military and AI and the possibilities there makes me wonder if the, if the real capability isn't necessarily on the battlefield, but in cyberspace. I think that's maybe an obvious uh, uh, point, right? Like if we're talking already about ransomware and malware potentially taking down things like our critical infrastructure, then as you said, the imagination can sort of run wild with the possibilities, right? Then then in that realm, in the cyber realm, is, is that actually an even more scary potential? I don't know if it's more frightening, but I'll tell you that AI is already being used in cyberspace. And frankly, it's being used in much more conventional ways we don't even realize. The Patriot missile system, which has been a around for a while and is protecting Ukrainians in Kyiv at this very moment, it's essentially an autonomous system. But it's a good example of where America has said, under our rules and our moral guidelines, it's still going to be a human who pulls the trigger, who says, okay, yes, we are going to shoot down that incoming object. I'm confident it's not a passenger plane, for example. But the Russians just today were bragging about how their new anti-aircraft missile system operated 100% autonomously with no human interaction whatsoever to shoot down some Ukrainian drones. That's a great example of how already our adversaries and we have not agreed on how AI is allowed to operate in these circumstances.
We've seen OpenAI's CEO testify before Congress, and he was saying, you guys need to regulate this. Um, we, we saw that AI copyright hearing before a congressional committee. People in AI who've been studying AI and researching it say this could all go very wrong very quickly. I, I guess I'm wondering, so, so now what? Like, how does this, in a regulatory sense, not go the way of social media, where we had multiple hearings over several years and still no regulation on that front? Well, this is a huge risk, and Congress is so far behind on just simply understanding this technology. I mean, forget AI for a second. Like you say, we haven't even figured out social media yet, and it's been around for 15 or 20 years. So the idea that we're going to get out ahead of this and successfully regulate the entire AI industry, I think, is unrealistic. And that's why I'm calling for Congress to just focus on the most dangerous cases like AI and warfare. That's where we should be concentrating our efforts. And let me just also say that it's pretty significant when you have the executives of these companies, the companies that have developed this technology and stand to profit off its use, coming to us and saying, you need to limit us. You need to limit our technology. You need to limit our profits. That's how significant this is. That's how dangerous this could be. And it also, it also bears pointing out where were you three years ago? I mean, I co-authored the Future Defense Task Force report where we said exactly this, we've got to get out ahead of AI and establish international norms for its use. But I felt like I was screaming into the wilderness back in 2020. Where were those tech executives then who were developing this technology? They've waited too long. So then finally, sir, what's your take then on some of the criticism of the proposed fiscal year budget for 2024? There does seem to be a lot of concern at every hearing I've uh, witnessed about the reduction in, in ships, the, 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 the naval fleet being sized down under, you know, in this budget and in, in this administration. I mean, what would you what do you say to those concerns, especially if we would need our Navy would be probably the most active branch should there right. be activity in the in the Indo-Pacific? Great question, because this is an amazing example of exactly what I'm talking about. We look at the number of ships as if it's 1985. Everyone talks about Reagan's 350 ship Navy. But what we really should be looking at is the capability of those ships. It's not about how many ships you have. It's about what they're actually capable of doing. In many cases, the ships we have today are, have the equivalent power of multiple ships in the past. But then the other side of this is that I think we should be investing in a lot of autonomous ships, in much smaller ships, essentially drones on water. In that case, we might end up with a thousand or two thousand ship Navy, but the vast majority of those will be small, inexpensive, and, you know, no great loss if they're blown up kind of ships that can be much more effective in this modern age of warfare. Congressman Seth Moulton, thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, a couple of visitors to the White House. Danish Prime Minister Mitty Frederiksen will meet with President Biden. The president will also welcome Super Bowl 57 champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. Also Monday, Apple begins its annual Worldwide Developers Conference. Tuesday, the 2024 Republican presidential field adds another candidate. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will be announcing his bid in New Hampshire. 
Wednesday, two more GOP candidates for president jump into the race. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is expected to announce in his state, while former Vice President Mike Pence will be making an announcement in Iowa. Thursday, unreleased Prince music will premiere at the Paisley Park celebration. The busy week at the White House continues. President Biden will meet with British Prime Minister Risha Sunak. They're also expected to hold a joint press conference. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Tom Graham, Fox News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tom Lahren. What's on your mind? It's no secret that Joe Biden is in physical and cognitive decline, but this fall on stage at the U.S. Air Force Academy graduation was a wake-up call. The man is far too old and far too fragile to be serving as the leader of the free world, and it's not just his body, it's his mind. And while I feel badly for Joe, and scenes like that fall are hard to watch, I also feel badly for our nation. Our enemies are watching as our commander-in-chief stumbles through the job, and you best believe they make note. And worse, he is running again in 2024? Where are his advisors, his family members? Why are they conspiring to commit elder abuse at this point? The Democrat Party knows this is not good, which is why they've already scoffed at the idea of Democratic debates. Question is, if you're not confident enough in your candidate to let him speak to voters, why should we be confident in his ability to run our nation? I'm Tommy Lahren, and you can watch my show, Tommy Lahren is Fearless at Outkick.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.